Good morning. Hey, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to continue through, there we go. Uh, We're going to continue through our series, Portraits of a Disciple, in which we're looking at taking lessons specifically from Peter's life as a disciple, both following Jesus in the flesh and then following Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, and, And so we've looked at a handful of things up to this point. We've seen that uh, disciples are called. As Jesus called Peter and James and John and Andrew out on the boat and showed himself to be Lord over all things, as he said, hey, cast your nets on the other side, and they did, and they pulled in a haul. It was on that time, the greatest day in their work life, that Jesus said, hey, come follow me. I will make you not fishers of fish, but fishers of men. And so they left everything at that moment and followed. Disciples are called. We we saw after that, uh, a couple of weeks ago, that even then as Jesus sends the disciples out into the sea and the storm comes and the wind and waves crash on the boat, he sent them into uncertainty, but he didn't send them in without him. I mean, initially, yes. But he met them in the middle of the uncertainty, in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the struggle. He met them there, and then he brought them out of that. He brought them through that. He walked to them on the water in the middle of that, and he rescued them, and they worshiped. So disciples worship in uncertainty. And then last week we saw in the example that Jesus gave of washing the disciples' feet, that he humiliated himself not in a sense that we would think, but, but taking the God who reigns over all things and then taking on the lowest of low job in that society. He went from the highest to the lowest and said, this is who I am. I'm no better than anybody else. But in so doing, he was also giving us the example that disciples are washed and made clean from the inside out. Washed meaning through faith in Jesus by repenting from sin and turning to trust him. Our sins are washed away, forgiven, and we are renewed. And that as we continue following Jesus, we get dirt on our feet, so to speak. As we live, there are times where we continue in sin. And we need to continue to come back, confess, repent, and turn from that. He might continue to forgive and cleanse. So why do we need to do that? if all of our sins have been forgiven already? Because Jesus said so. That's, that's as best as I got. Uh, and he gave us that example. He said it's necessary. And by the way, if you've been washed and clean, that's it. You don't need to be washed wholly, all of you, again, but you do need to come and confess and repent continually. And this week we're going to look at, actually this week and next week, I'm calling an audible. There's too much in this text, really, to do justice in one week and not go for 45 or 50 minutes, so you're welcome. Uh, So we're going to go, I'm going to continue this next week. Um, Here's how I feel about this text this week. 
Have you ever been in this situation? You're in your car, maybe you're on your front porch, maybe you're on vacation on a beach somewhere, and you see a sunset that is just spectacular. And there may be somebody with you, there may not be anybody with you, but you think, I need to capture this moment, whether it's in my head or on my phone or with an actual camera, not your phone, which still exists, and I need to capture this so I can show somebody else. I can show other people. Like, this is too spectacular. And, and you take it in, and you capture it, let's just say, with a camera on a phone. And, and if you're like me in that setting, sometimes you take the picture, this is phone, or picture like this, and then you look at it, and you go, man, that doesn't look the same. That doesn't look like this. There's something lost in translation. And even if you go and try to describe it to people, I saw the most beautiful sunset sitting on the beach in Cabo down in Mexico, and it was just amazing. You'll never believe. And you try to describe it, and the person's listening, because they didn't see what you saw, they're going, I mean, it sounds good, I guess. And the more that you try to describe it or even show the picture, you're like, I know it looks like this, and yeah, that's pretty, but believe me, it was better than this in real life. Okay, have you been there? And maybe it's not a sunset, maybe it's something else. Right? You try to describe it and you just can't get the words out to relay it properly to somebody else. You know this without me even saying so. I'm no one special. When it came to this passage, and as I sat and read and studied and thought and meditated and wrote, and like things just beginning began to bubble out through the Holy Spirit in God's Word, and I thought, I can't communicate all of this to you all in a way that you see what I saw or, or think think what I thought or feel what I feel as we behold the Savior of the world in this moment. I can't convey that to you. I, I will do my best, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, if He does a work in your life, it's through Him that He's helping you see and grasp and hear what He wants you to hear. This is something that you need to dig into on your own. Uh, this text is so... Not, not weighty isn't the right word. It's so full that we can't even do it justice in two weeks. So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 17. And this same thing is found in slightly different details in each of the three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Uh, and you can go and read it in those. We'll stick with Matthew's account for right now. Um, so, Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, after, and we'll get to the after later, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up high, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, which means that his form and appearance changed right in front of them. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold there appeared to them 
the four people who were there, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so that we can just stay in this little meeting that we have going on. Let's just stay here for a while. Like, let me build you a place where we can just sit together in this moment for as long as you'll allow it. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, and the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In this text, Jesus is communicating to us. God is showing us a picture that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that he reveals God's glory. And those two things go together simultaneously. So, let's unpack this. Today, we're going to look at, in your bulletin, there's three things. We're going to look at the first one in major, and the second one in minor, and then we'll pick back up with the second one and finish out that part next week. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What does this mean? So first, because you guys sitting here are not a Jewish audience, I don't think. The law and the prophets is is somewhat lost on us as far as a phrase that is used. These, in this text, would have understood that just by mention. So let's, let's start here. The law... Okay, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Levitic, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy, whatever. You know it, I don't. Clearly, anyway, we'll move on. The law, those all five are attributed in writing to Moses. Moses wrote those, right? God revealed the law to Moses. So the law, those five books, we we think of the law in two ways, the moral law and the ceremonial law. And I look at Bruce because we had a a couple weeks long discussion of this in their Sunday school class a while back. Um, and, And we hashed through all of this. The moral law and the ceremonial law. The moral law is God's revelation. And and we mainly boil that down to the Ten Commandments. It's bigger than the Ten Commandments, but we kind of summarize it in the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments for us in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and the second greatest is like that, love your neighbor as yourself. And those ten things boil down into those two. The law, the moral law, and that is given to us 
as a picture of what it looks like to be godly. Not as parameters to put on our life to keep us from having fun. Okay? I don't think you guys believe me in that. Let me repeat it for a second. The Ten Commandments, God's moral law, are not parameters given to us by God to keep us from having fun in life. Actually, they're the exact opposite. They're parameters and bounds for us to live in so that we can live in freedom in life because by following God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, we actually we're freed up to enjoy life. And, and here's a picture of it. In the garden, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates everything and he creates it good. Right? In, in Genesis, I can't talk this morning. Please forgive me. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden in the midst of God's good creation. And God says, enjoy everything that's before you. Love it. Endeavor in it. And I'm going to give you some instructions, right? Oversee it. Have dominion over it. You have some responsibility, right? Keep it. Keep the garden. And then be fruitful and multiply. Create, just as I have created. And by the way, there's one tree right in the middle of the garden that I'm going to ask you not to eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil given by God to keep them from enjoying everything that he had? Given them? No. It was to say, you want to stay away from that one thing. I've given you a whole perfect garden to enjoy, to oversee for your joy. So, enjoy it. But just stay away from that one thing. The same thing is true of us now. I've given you a world to live in. I've given you instructions on how to be like me, how to live out with my character, godliness. To live out the image of God, that we are God's image, meaning that we live in such a way that we show, we evidence God to the world around us. And as we follow God's laws, the law we live godly. That is the moral law. It shows us and gives us instructions on how to be godly. You with me? The ceremonial law is given to us because we can't keep the moral law. Because we cannot live within those bounds. Because sin exists in our life. And so God gave us in his graciousness in his love so that we could come into his very presence and enjoy life with him. He gave us the ceremonial law, which means all of our uncleanliness, all of our sin is covered in the ceremonial law, which is all the sacrifices, all the washings, everything in the Old Testament that we don't follow today. Why don't we follow that? I'll leave you hanging there for a second. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the moral law. Jesus came and lived perfectly. He was the exact image and representation of God. If you want to know what God would look like as a man living in our world, you look at Jesus. Everything that he did, everything that he said was perfect. It reflected God the Father. 
When he spoke, he spoke God's words. When he acted, he acted in God's character. He fulfilled the moral law. He kept the moral law at every turn in every situation until his death. Why don't we have the ceremonial law anymore? Because Jesus fulfilled it. Because in keeping the exact moral law that we fall short of, and by the way, Scripture says, if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. If you've broken one minute, tiny rule, you've broken all of it. You're guilty of all of it. You stand guilty before God, period. Jesus came keeping everything that we couldn't keep, to the end of his life, perfect, and then he died a death that he didn't deserve. In so doing, though, the sacrifice that he made for, of himself on the cross fulfilled the ceremonial law. He is the means by which we are cleaned, all of our sins, all of our uncleanness, that the ceremonial law was meant to wash away, to give us fellowship with God the Father, Jesus fulfilled perfectly so that we could find perfection in him, that we are cleansed and forgiven and made new, opened up to fellowship with God the Father. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Both parts of the law. He kept it, and he made a way for us to be clean who didn't keep it, and then he fulfilled the prophets. What does that mean? Okay, let's look at Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is at the very end of Moses. Moses is, is preaching a series of sermons, um, which is far better at the end of his life, before he goes away, God's communicated so much to him, and before he goes, he communicates this in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. And he says, The Lord your God, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. Just background real quick. At the mountain when the Ten Commandments were given, God descended in a cloud of smoke and fire and rumblings and he spoke audibly to the people and the people heard him and said, listen, we don't want to hear from God again. Not because they didn't like God or what he said, but because it was too much and overwhelming for them. He said, you be the go-between for us. So Moses went up on the mountain. God communicated with Moses. They communed together. They met together, and then Moses came down and imparted God's words to the people. He spoke God's words to the people. He delivered a message from God to the people. He was a prophet. In addition to writing the law, he spoke God's words to people. That's what a prophet is, a messenger from God sent with God's words, delivering it to people. Just as God raised me up as a prophet at your request, verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them 
all that I command, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of the other gods, the same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how, many, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken, has not spoken? So when a false prophet comes without God's words, how do we know that that's not from God? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need to be afraid of him. Okay, so what does that have to do with Jesus being transfigured on the top of a mountain? One, God's telling Moses, Moses is telling the people, I'm going to send a prophet like you, Moses, that's going to speak every word that I give him, and every word that he speaks is from me. Okay, you with me? Yes? I'm worried. It's a little warm in here, so I know how that goes. Okay, I need you to look at two things. Matthew 17, in the passage that we read earlier, and I lost it. God shows up, right? Peter says, man, let me build you guys tabernacles so we can just stay here. In the midst of saying that, God showed up and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to to the words that he said, God, why do you want us to listen to your son who's beloved? Because I've given him the words that he's speaking and I want you to listen to what he's saying. God the Father saying, the words that I've given him are mine. They're true. Hear him. Pay attention to what he's saying because I've given him what to say. He is Deuteronomy 18 Okay, and if you say, well, I kind of get that, but it's a little fuzzy for me. Okay, go back to Matthew 16, two verses before 17 starts. 16, 27. Jesus is speaking at the end of feeding the 5,000. Peter confesses him as the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells of his death and resurrection that he must suffer, and if anybody should take up his cross after me, let him do that. If he would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Okay, I'm coming in glory, in the glory of the Father, I'm coming. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you that there are some standing here right now in front of me that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, until they see the Son coming in his glory. Six days later, he takes three guys that were standing in front of him when he says that. He's talking, yes, about the second coming. Okay? which is still hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for Christ to return again. Three guys that were standing in front of him, some of you will not taste death until you've seen me coming in my glory. Six days later, he takes three of those guys up on a mountain, and he is transfigured, and his face shines like the sun, and his clothes are bright white. What he 
said six days before came true. God, how will we know when you send somebody to speak on your behalf and you give them the words to say, how will we know that you're, they're from you? This is how you will know when they come true. Why did the three guys go with him? Why did Jesus show this to the three guys? Why not go up there and meet with Moses and Elijah on his own? Why? Why should we know now? Because it fulfills what Jesus said and shows him to be the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to send a prophet like Moses, and he's going to speak words of truth to you. God affirms it in this moment as he meets with Moses and Elijah. Elijah, A, being the, probably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament prophets, which is why he said he's going to pave the way, Elijah's going to come and pave the way, and why they were confused then when Jesus has already come, but now Elijah and Moses are meeting with them on the mountain. Wait a second, Jesus, I thought Elijah was supposed to come first. But now you're saying you are the Son of Man, and we believe that. But Elijah's here, but he didn't come before now. How does that? And he realized, he was talking about John the Baptist, okay? Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. That's why he's in the picture now. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, Jesus representing the two of them coming together perfectly in him. They are meeting together and showing this to be true. Okay, so if the law is God's communication to us about how to be like me. You want to be like me, do the law. Keep the law. If the prophets are those sent by God to speak God's words to people, right? That would be truth. God is truth. Everything that he says is true. You're speaking my words, you're speaking truth. We know God through what people say about him. None of us have seen him face to face. So prophecy, speaking God's truth to people, reveals God. It reveals his character. It reveals his works. I'm telling you that this is going to happen, and boom, it does happen. And we see that over and over and over. The law reveals to us God's nature and character. The prophets reveal to us God's truth and works. Those two things come together in Jesus. He fulfills the law and the prophets. Why is this a big deal? Because as Jesus is transformed in this moment, we're looking at God. The fulfillment of the law showing God's character, the fulfillment of speaking God's truth, all coming together in the person of Jesus. That's why you said, if, that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God's glory is his character and nature on display. We see it in creation. We see his character displayed in creation. We see it in the praises of his people. We see his character sung about. We see it as we love one another. We reveal God's love through the way that we live. When we care about others, we see God's glory revealed in our caring. And Jesus just showed us the grand picture of the Old Testament coming together in one sitting in one scene, God perfectly on display in the person of Jesus. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Why? To reveal to us God's glory in a visible way. In Jesus, we see God the Father. 
That's why this is a big deal. And that's why the disciples, Peter said, Jesus, can we just, can we just sit here for a minute? Like, I don't want to leave. Like, it's good for us to be here. Not just because you said that some people would see this and we're here to see it, so that that's, but it's just good for us to be here because we've never seen anything like this. And yes, I'm putting words in their mouth at that moment, but I think, I think it's okay. I, I, think, I think it's true that they had never seen anything like that. Jesus transformed before their eyes, revealing God the Father before them. And then these guys going away and exploding the church. Yes, some other things happened in between. I don't think there's any coincidence that Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Your confession, what you've seen, you know me, you've been there with me at every point. Go and do what I said. Live what I've shown you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he reveals to us God's glory. Guys, why does this matter? Because when we assemble in here on a Sunday morning or in rooms here or downstairs, it's not just some stories that we read that were written. It's a revelation of God the Father in the text. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect representation of God in the flesh. These are stories that reveal to us God. The God of the universe that could have kept hidden and been fine. Perfect fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Good. I don't need anything outside of that. And yet, in their grace and in their mercy, they created us and revealed themselves to us that we could behold them. So when we come in here and sing, it's not just words on a screen. We're endeavoring for just a moment, if just in a twinkle, to reveal the glory of God as we sing. Because what we sing of Him is true. We come to God's Word because we believe that the Spirit can show us in His Word God Himself in His truth. And then we go out from here carrying that message, living in such a way that we seek to reveal His glory by living out and carrying out His character to the world around us. We endeavor to take the message and speak His truth to the world around us. It's not just playing around. I have a couple of hobbies in life. They've changed over the years. I like, I like house projects, like not because a house needs to be, look better, but just because it's a good outlet for me. Um, it, it's a good stress relief. I enjoy it. Uh, I, I love music. Uh, not just playing, but listening. I just sit and listen to music. And really, side note, I think anything is better with music. Doing work is okay, but doing work with music is better, right? Coming to church is good. Gathering the church together in this place with music is better, okay? I have a couple of hobbies. 
and I like them. And, and actually, just recently, I've been growing a little bit in mechanics. I'm a really crude, crude mechanic. I, don't even, I wouldn't even use that word of myself, but I like turning a wrench, uh, and I have a knuckle to prove it. You've done it too. Church is a bad hobby. There's a lot of other hobbies that you can endeavor in. This is a poor hobby. And I'm not the first to say that. Listen, if you're going to show up here, show up. I love it. Okay? And I I would never tell you don't come. But if your being here is just a hobby, it's something you do with Sunday or Wednesday night when we get back to that. Sunday morning, hear a little teaching, sing a couple songs, maybe shake a hand or two when it's not corona season. It's a bad hobby. It really is. Because it's missing the point altogether. And it diminishes what Jesus came to reveal to us. That he is God in the flesh from heaven on high sent to carry out God's will perfectly, to lay down his life for us who would not be able to carry out God's will perfectly. He would give his life on our behalf so that we could be made perfect. And that is why we gather. That's why we sing That's why this is a big deal, that we could turn from our sin and we could find forgiveness and renewal and transformation and purpose and joy in Him. It's a bad hobby because if it's just a hobby, none of that happens. And you leave here the same as when you came in. And you go through life the same as always. It's not a hobby. It's laying down your life for a Savior who laid down his life for you. Jesus, my life is yours. I've messed it up. I know you gave yours to fix it. I don't know how you're going to fix it, and I don't know how you're going to change me, but I know that you can, so you do the work in me that I can't do in myself. That's trusting Jesus. And that's when it goes from being a hobby to being real. And the God on high being revealed through your life, which is the whole point. Not just in here, but out there. It's a bad hobby. But it's a fantastic life. Joy everlasting and the hope of the glory that is to come when we would be transformed as Christ was transformed on the mountain. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. And we look forward to that day. Listen, if this is a hobby for you today, that can all change. It's, just, it's up to you. Have you considered yourself, your sins, your way of living to be put to the side and to the wayside and forever set aside? Recognizing that Jesus gave his life to pay for your sin and imperfection and that you would wholly trust and follow him. Whether you understand it fully or not. Like, that's all it is. Jesus, I realize that you did it for me, and I want to turn from me and trust you and follow you and set everything else aside. And we live fueled by who our Savior is, what he's done, the picture that he's given to us, the life that he's modeled for us, and then what he's called us to and the hope that he sets in the future for us.
Let's pray. Father, if but for a moment, God, would we be able to see the glory that the disciples saw on the mountaintop, that you would, I don't know how, I don't even know what it looks like, to be honest, that you would reveal yourself to us that we may get a glimpse of your glory. And whether it's looking around at the world that you've created, whether it's the love of, of you displayed in a life that we're looking at, or even encountering our own life. God, whether it's the songs that we sing or just sitting and thinking about and considering your word. And may we see a picture of your glory and may we respond, whether figuratively or literally, kneeling before you. God, our confession is that we need you. We need a word from you. We need a God, we need your spirit in us, in this place to change us and make us like the one that we behold, the one that we see. Would you, in seeing Jesus and turning from our sin and trusting him as Lord, would you continue as we behold and look at him to make us more like him? Father, do a work in this moment that only you can do, accredited to your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name.